So not only do you have a starter, you named it something? You named it Liz? A, a sourdough starter. Yes, her name is Liz. She's now a part of me. <laughs> well, how can... So, <laughs> well, probably literally, right? Because it's, like, in your gut now. But, yeah, like... Yeah, but also, like, I, I, I didn't get the starter from any, <laughs> anywhere else. So it developed from the yeast that was, like, in the air and in the flour that I had purchased. Wait, so wait, maybe wait, wait, even wait, wait. literally, may, like, so you, we have the same yeast. So this is on the... This is like next level because everyone else I hear about like gets their starter from someone. But you're saying that you just like made this? Well, yes, because I didn't have anybody. It brought that itself into being. super easily get a st- begotten, yes. not made. And, and there, <laughs> there's a benefit of actually getting a starter from somebody else because the older it is, the more flavor it has. Right. And so um, – and, you know, you can start baking with it essentially right away. Whereas if you make it, it's like a five-day process where the the yeast starts to develop this colony. Um, but I was, like, in lockdown, essentially. So I was like, I don't know. I got time and I got flour. So let's how go. Can we, how can we monetize um, this? Can so, yeah, I've been – do, like, a people... Patreon tier of where people <laughs> get some of your sourdough starter? Get some Liz. Yeah, Matt, Matt Kelleher <laughs> from Subtext Books already has already has part of Liz. I think okay, he so named the first thing we're going to have to do. Yeah. The first thing we're going to have to do is send him an invoice um, so that we can <laughs> make sure that no one's riding the print run sourdough starter wagon for free. We're all trying to diversify right. our holdings here during coronavirus. I was actually I was actually going to get sourdough starter from your wife, but then oh. we stopped seeing each other before I decided to hop on the train. Yes. Um, yeah, man, this whole thing has just made it so that none of us can ever see anyone ever again. And that's <laughs> and on that yeah. note, welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. Uh, with me at a remote social distance, um, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura, and also Liz. Hello. <laughs> Liz. Um, <laughs> the extended universe is continuing to grow. Um, oh, we should also say hello to Jonathan, who is our adopted loon. Yes, yes, that's good too. Um, so we've got the we've got the loon here that stuffed animal that came from our auto uh, maybe people who don't follow us online don't know about that uh we i guess adopted a wild loon through the autobahn society (laughs) uh which was you know great move by us um and thanks very much to harry marks for pointing that out to us yeah Um, super responsible use of our uh income in this time no i mean what do you i mean if you're one of our Patreon subscribers, what are you trying to get other than a loon? Now we have a loon, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, we, this is it. This is the show, folks. Um, but, yeah, so we've got this loon, and then the Audubon Society sent us a, a certificate animal that I then used to taunt my dog, which um, he didn't like. I frankly didn't like because then he was barking at me the rest of the afternoon about it. <laughs> um, all bad. But anyway, today we're going to be talking about wolf kink. Um, which is somehow relevant to our various publishing interests right now, mostly mm-hmm. because um, there's this wild article in the New York Times about that kind of shows us maybe the history of like collectivized ideas and copyright in a way that I think is going to be worth talking about. Um, but before we get to any of that, how about the basic rundown? 
Absolutely. So we are approaching the end of the month um, due to some technical, I don't want to say difficulties. I think I want to say struggles. Uh, to I want to say sure. adversity to overcome. Yeah, adversity. Due to some technical adversity, um, we haven't yet recorded our special episodes because we are waiting for Eric to get his very own rig set up like me because I sound great right now and Eric is less than great. I sound fine. <laughs> uh, so we will have that probably this weekend and and then we'll be able to record just a bunch of special episodes for everybody and we'll hopefully get back to that recording quality you all know and love. Um, so if you're looking for our special episodes for this month, don't worry, you haven't missed them. No, they're coming. Uh, we're just trying to, they yeah, we're just trying up. to battle. Yeah, we're trying to battle some tech. We're going to teach Eric how to use an interface. It's going to be very exciting. Um, it's hard to teach me to do anything, so that'll be a real accomplishment. <laughs> um, this is good. Yeah, my yeah, we're gonna. We're, he's gonna drop his computer off, and we're gonna like preset all the levels and like do this whole thing. And it's yeah, and there's gonna be tests involved. Anyway, it's very involved, but we're trying really hard because we don't know how long um, recording remotely is going to last. So just yes. just thank you for being patient with us on that. Um, so special episodes, they're available on Patreon. If you are thinking, hey, that sounds pretty good and I don't want you to I don't want to wait for you to get your shit together, uh, you, you can become a Patreon subscriber right now because we have like over like 30 episodes of query critiques and first pages shows and kind of general flex Q&A or deep dives into things like comp titles or contracts um, that a lot of people have found really, really helpful. So mm -hmm. if you have anything you want us to cover, if you want us to critique your work, if you have questions, or simply if you need access and you can't afford it, send it to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com and we will get back to you and give you the access or that you need or we will just put your work into the queue for us to critique or your questions to answer. So I think that's most yes. of it, it <laughs> for right now. So the first thing we want to talk about today is, like what we said at the top of the show, wolf is... sex. <laughs> Folks, it's time to talk about wolf sex. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, there's this story going around in the New York Times today that we'll link out to, and we're going to try our best not to just summarize it. Um, but it's called, and this is from um, May 23rd, it's by the writer Alexandra Alter, um, and the article is titled, A Feud in Wolf Kink Erotica raises a deep legal question. Um, really good title. It's got a great Fierce Wolf picture here as the header. Um, like a really fierce so, one? Yeah. A very, frankly, a very sexy wolf. <laughs> the wolf can get it, folks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but so basically, again, what's happened here is you have, you have two figures at the center of this that are kind of in conflict now. This woman, Addison Kane, who for many years has been writing... Um, I guess like a sort of a fan fiction, you know, that kind of draws from these tropes of, I guess what they're calling lupin sex, right? Like there's a lot of kind of like wolf pack themed eroticism. Yeah. Um, to, 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 to jump in really yeah. quick. Sure. Please. Yeah. To jump in really quick. Um, so the, the, the area of, of the writing world that, that we're concerning here is called the Omegaverse. Oh yeah, I was going to work into that. Yeah, sure. okay, well, great. But it's the it's the Omegaverse, and basically what it is is it's like 
it started as supernatural incest fan fiction, which is funny um, Mm -hmm. because none of those characters are werewolves, but it kind of like turned into this sort of like shifter wolf dynamic, like alpha, beta, omega, like lots of sex, lots of pheromones, lots of like, and you know, and there's fun stuff like men becoming impregnated in this. That's very, very common in this sort of area. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really, um, well, the 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 conflicts that we're talking about has to do with straight Omegaverse, but it's also really, 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 really big in terms of um, specifically gay stories. Mm-hmm. So that's that's fun. But anyway, that's the Omegaverse. There you go. <laughs> Thank you, Laura, for bringing in, for jumping in and explaining the Omegaverse in a I way that I could not possibly have done. Um, and so there's this this one woman has been writing this. She's she publishes with a small press, uh, Blushing Books, and she puts these books out, and it's been going pretty well, right? And then, um, basically, what she finds one day is that this other woman, Zoe Alice, has been writing stories um, that are very similar, that draw from the same tropes, that have sort of similar elements in a way that she found uncanny enough to start sending like cease and desists, right? Like basically using, you know, a copyright act saying, hey, you're copying my stuff, stop doing that. And that's where things get interesting here. Because what I guess, you know, where we're at now is this idea that both writers have been pulling from this collectivized space, right? The Omegaverse, this sort of open source, you know, place where I think I read in this article, you know, like 70,000 pieces of fan fiction, you know, have been written into this into this world, you know, and like it's being contributed to constantly. Everyone is pulling from the same tropes, all these different things. You sort of have this like collectivized and growing and very unwieldy body of work that people are contributing to for free. And now that a couple people are, you know, making money off that, you know, there's, we're sort of intersecting now with, okay, well, who owns what? And that question is incredibly complicated when, the tropes and the um, you know the ideas and the plot lines and so many of these things that they're working from are coming from like this open source space, right? Yeah, and I think um, it's important to note that the United States uh, Copyright Office allows for people to make claims as long as they're in essentially like good faith that something is infringing on them. They don't have to prove anything. It's just kind of like they fell out a form essentially and they send Mm -hmm. it to retailers and the retailers take the books down. So it's important to note that um, Kane sent those notices and had books taken down or Ellis's books or Ellis's books taken down and then Ellis filed a countersuit. So right now they're both suing each other, one for one for plagiarism or copyright infringement and the other for defamation and, and mm-hmm. loss of income and that sort right. of thing. Um, so it's all very exciting. And like in the, um, you know, you have this line here, I'm just looking at this article, you know, in the countersuit, you know, from, from Zoe Ellis, you know, and her publisher, which is, I think, um, her, from what I understand here, you know, they are arguing, you know, basically that, quote, no one owns the Omegaverse, you know, like, and that, or, or quote, the various tropes that define Omegaverse. And I just find this fascinating because if you remember, like, we did an episode a long time ago, I think it was one of our more popular ones, 
you know, we covered the Cockygate scandal, right? Where someone had tried to, um, they had tried to basically go ahead and copyright a word so ubiquitous within their category that, and then start using that copyright claim as a means of trying to get others out of the market, right? Like mm-hmm. saying, hey, you're using the word cocky in your book title, which everyone was. It's a romance. You know what I mean? The yeah. sphere was romance. And it, you know, it didn't work. And this person was sort of brought to heel in their own way. And like, and and we were all able to look at that and say, wow, that's in bad faith, right? Like they clearly did that as a means of advancing their own career, hurting others. There's not an actual good faith claim here. And what's happening now is we've I feel like we've been waiting all along for something like less something more complicated to arise like I feel like with that story we were able to look at it and say oh yeah here's this one bad actor it's an individual that we can readily point at and say wow they are um you know this is a this is a bad actor that we can very easily see doesn't have a true copyright claim to this stuff and what's happening here especially in the context that I think it's necessary to understand is that and this is something that Amazon has said too, that half of the claims, half of the claims they get for copyright stuff are basically bad faith, are basically people trying to do that. And so we're just in this environment now where we have this one slipshod rule where you can, you know, try to, you know, you can send like copyright infringement notices to people. But it's just being abused and it no longer lines up with the environment as it is. Like it's a rule that was written well before we had any Omegaverse. Be- before we had the <laughs> Omegaverse. Before we had this growing open source platform of people that are contributing not only contributing work, but contributing work within a set of patterns and tropes, right? Like I and think creating the jo- those patterns. Right, and exactly. Tropes. I think the genre fiction element of this is really interesting, which is that not only are people producing work, but they are using that existing work to play with those patterns, to play with... Like, the point is that lots of this stuff sounds similar because the people who are interested in it are looking for specific things, right? And it's just making this situation where now... I just look at this and I get a sense of vertigo, right? Because clearly, clearly, the copyright landscape is not equipped to deal with something as big and breathable and very I mean both of the both of the authors here that we're talking about have done pretty well like these are people who have published one you know with blushing books you know um, and I guess the publisher in this article they said that they've made like three hundred seventy thousand dollars just off those books and then I've been working uh, in the wrong genres well seriously yeah I'm, get, <laughs> I'm getting out of nonfiction politics and getting into wolf kink um, which is going to be really good for my list. I'm going to send my authors a little note, helping them pivot, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's it's just wild to me that, like, it's hard to even know. Like, I look at this, and this is the same way that I saw the uh, Lonnie Serum thing when we were talking about Cockygate. Like, the implications of this, like this, even this, as a more complicated case than the cocky gate thing this too feels like a precursor of something much more complex to come you yeah know? so i i actually want to want to talk about that for a minute yeah um so what what i think is is really interesting here is there are two okay so the united states and just copyright laws in in general across the world right 
are equipped to deal with things that are put in preservable formats like that is Mm -hmm. the basis of our copyright laws okay so the idea is like once you write something down and it's in a preservable format like you have the copyright for that Mm -hmm. and there are like legal protections for filing it with your copyright office but but it's it's not fully and entirely necessary um and so there's there's no precedent for some for like a developing area of literature that has common ideas but those common ideas are are developed through writing Mm -hmm. because then you kind of you get into that confusing gray area which is really difficult which is um is this just a trope which is something that is not copyrightable or right. are we copying the the actual writing and these very important identifying markers um and i think i think if you look a little bit deeper into the omegaverse um like kerfuffle with these two authors it'll become pretty clear that we're not dealing with plagiarism. Like that is right. not something like this is specifically a landmark case that seeks to set precedent for laying claim to ideas. In, and, um, I, you know, like and honestly, like I'm coming down on the side of well, you like you can't do that, right? Like if you if you say that you can copyright tropes, um, then like all of science fiction and all of fantasy and all of thriller and all of mystery and all of romance are just gonna like collapse. Um, and I I don't think that's going to happen. Like that's right. a little that's being a little bit chicken little. Right. Um, but I think what's really interesting here is like all of all of those genres that I just said like those developed over a really long time and developed these rules and developed these structures that um are are like far enough removed that they don't belong to anybody so like supernatural has been on which was you know the start of this kind of omegaverse idea which i think probably it wasn't the full start of it but that's kind of where the omegaverse was the the origins are being traced like that like that show is still on the air right um right. like it's it's fairly recent and i think if you look for something like keeping with the wolf if you think about um the common rules with werewolves right like you have mm-hmm. these things that were built up over time that were built up over legends and the way people told them and stories that people wrote it's like okay you get infected with a bite um you transform around the full moon maybe it's just that one night maybe it's the two nights on either side and the full moon can't touch silver um like there's kind of all of these elements that are very very commonly associated and so when somebody decides to play in that sandbox you have to decide how you're engaging with those ideas and that's something we talk a lot about in terms of like craft advice right Mm -hmm. um and so with the Omegaverse, I think what it really is, is it's like a lot of it is people trying to monetize and people trying to lace claim on the beginnings of this sort of thing. And and there's something that happens a lot that I wasn't really prepared for when I got into publishing, which mm-hmm. is um, writers being really, really, really concerned that somebody is going to steal their idea. 
That is interesting because I, I and I I want you to say a lot more on that yeah. because that, I feel like that's something that um, you know coming from a traditional publishing background you know into agenting that was a concern I was kind of caught off guard by too is every author I started working with was like hey do we need to you know file for copyright on my proposal materials on my pitches like all this different stuff and I I remember my thought early on was like well no no one like it, this is fine like we're gonna that's silly. But we don't need to do that. But then you see something like this and that thinking kind of changes, huh? Yeah. And I think and I think the reason that in in publishing, it feels kind of ridiculous to be like, dude, nobody wants to take your idea. Right. Um, and I think that there's a lot of elements to that. I think number one is that um, there's not really incredibly fresh stories anymore like like there's nothing new under the sun and from a publishing perspective when we're talking about something that's monetizable and something that is something that is um protectable and copyrightable we're talking Mm -hmm. about the execution and not the exact idea so um like and and really like really good examples of this are like one of my favorite things is um, when when film has like two of the almost exact same movie come out from different places in the same year. And it's like you can really, really see how it's more about the the execution of the particular film rather than the idea. So if you think about the like Friends with Benefits and No Strings Attached or like The Illusionist right. and The Prestige, like all, those all came mm-hmm. out in the same year and with books it's like that but even more because books have more content in them and so you're you're able to kind of play in that sandbox a little bit more um and so the the concern of well this is my idea and i own it is something that publishing often really frankly ignores except when big money is involved and that that i think is where i want to where i want to take this conversation because Mm -hmm. um to me, the important or the important part about this Omega verse lawsuit is not that these two women are setting a legal precedent. It's that we are getting a front row seat into the struggles of how ideas become something that belongs to somebody. And, and what I that am, belonging then is able to then retroactively right. say about the ideas yeah right and so my this this is where i i get my like big corporation tin hat on which is my favorite hat to love wear. the tinfoil hat yeah <laughs> we gotta bring that segment back by the way it's I, well this is it this is the this is this this moment yeah. right here is the segment right. which is right. i think that this is not going to matter because here's here's what I think that none of this legislation, the squabbling in between individual people is going to matter until a really big corporation looks at this particular crowdsourced idea and decides to kind of like create the first or mainstream or seminal work of it. And then they're going to throw all their money behind like retconning the origins and making this one the or like the one that they invested in the origin. Okay, so I, that's obviously a fascinating idea, and I just want to make sure we're, <laughs> that we're laying it out clearly. So what you're saying is that eventually, like right now we're talking about small presses and individuals publishing mm-hmm. on Amazon, right? Like we're talking about people who are being quite successful on the individual level, you know, monetizing a fandom in a way that I think you know, can be very tricky, can lead to lawsuits like this. Like 
obviously lots you know lots of fan fiction kind of hinges on not monetizing it but here we have some people that have sort of made that leap or doing things in a certain way and it's what you're saying might happen and i think that i agree with you yeah. is that at some point a giant publisher a giant entity you could see someone like disney do it not maybe with this specific um you know the classic disney program wolf kink um but it's <laughs> like i think that at some point with this kind of stuff a giant corporation publisher whoever is going to look at it and say yeah we can do that and you they're going to bring it mainstream and they're going to ma- they're going to sign a big deal out of this stuff, yeah. right? And they're going to make a big splash with it. But then the second part of what you just described, I think really is the part that gives me the vertigo. In 20 know? years, yeah. the person who invented the Omegaverse is whoever that big corporation publishes. Yeah, that's according to is. logic. I mean, that's that's what's going to happen. It's like, all, like right now, I mean, the line from that, you know, the lawsuit, no one owns the Omegaverse. Like that, I think is true right now. Until and Disney I, decides they want it, exactly, and they're going to be able to <laughs> rewrite that history. They're going to say, "No, this was our thing," and it's going to get totally colonized and appropriated in that way. It's going to be taken off that, and then we're going to remember whatever it is they publish as the first of this thing, and and they'll be really they'll be way more aggressive and effective yeah. than individuals at. And so you can just see how, like. This collectivized space, which I do think is really cool, by yeah. the way, like this idea that people like regardless of the topic, obviously, like this isn't my thing. But like the idea of a bunch of writers interested in something coming together and creating this open source platform that discusses the same thing, plays with the tradition and tropes that they've all sort of created and added to on the fly. Like that's really cool. And the idea that at some point we're starting to see it now on this individual level, but that that is going to get colonized. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's going to get housed in something and it's going to, what how it existed and where it came from is going to be totally rewritten. So I think um, for those of you who are listening, it's like, that's not going to happen. We already know about it. There's so much work ahead of it. Um, right. I have a couple of examples that just mm-hmm. happened like really recently um, that makes me like even like super convinced that this is going to be a thing. Um or has the potential to be a thing. So on May 4th, for many, many years, there's a bunch of people celebrating May 4th because as like Star Wars Day, may the 4th be with you. Right. Um, This year, (laughs) uh, Disney went all in on like hashtags on Twitter and, and various other social medias and say, use this hashtag and like, we'll make it part of our kind of like semi official thing. And, they, they were just able to, like, come right out in their terms and conditions and say, like, whatever you post with this hashtag is free for us to use forever mm-hmm. with no yep. with with no no anything. Right. Like by posting this thing, which is inspired by something that they own, but isn't something they own. Um, they're able to say, hey, this is ours. And this morning I was reading about um, J.K. Rowling from Harry Harry Potter fame. Um, who now? Who is this J.K. Rowling? <laughs> so she announced that because 
this is a tough time. She's going to release for free a serialized version of this like children's story that she wrote many years ago and has turned mm-hmm. like turned into a book, right? Sure. And that later she's going to be publishing this book as like an illustrated edition. But here's the here's the kicker, right? Mm-hmm. She wants to turn kids reading the story um into sort of like a an illustration contest she wants to crowdsource the illustrations from children oh, reading this book man. and if you submit the illustrations she owns them <laughs> that's it like god damn it <laughs> it's like they get to use them in the book and that's it uh if they want and they don't even have to use it in the book it's just like they like she can use them however she wants forever and ever and ever I love the con. This is like what um, this is. I mean, this is obviously a totally different thing, but it has echoes of like a literary magazine, like charging a submission fee for a contest and then just like taking the money and not giving you anything. And like, it's just like this framing that they're offering you something mm-hmm. when really what you're doing is like doing work for them for free. It's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Goodness so gracious. anyway, yeah, um, yeah I, I feel like it's important for everybody to know that I yeah. named this session in my in my recording um, tools the Omar Gerd verse because <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's my tinfoil hat, uh, and that's why I'm not crazy. Well, it's worth watching. I think all this stuff as it unfolds, you know, because um, like again, like these these individual things that feels kind of like canary in the coal mine kind of thing. Right. Because like what's actually going to happen is someone big is going to make a move. I, I don't know. Like it just feels like we're at the very early stages. And like, I just keep thinking that, you know, I just look at the money being thrown around in this stuff, like how much money there is to make off something that supposedly isn't even that monetized. Like conventional <laughs> wisdom would say, Oh, you can't monetize that. It's fan fiction, all this stuff. But like, it is dwarfing, dwarfing what traditionally published authors can make. Like something, I don't have a take on this yet because it feels like too big of a topic for an offhand comment, but something is changing. Something is going to become different here. And I I guess I worry about traditional publishing in the sense that I like it and value the work, but I also think that we are nearing a moment of shift. And things like this that feel very separate um, or it can feel very small and, and fun. I mean, it is funny. It's funny to look at things like, like I enjoy talking about stuff like this cause it's kind of absurd and kind of interesting. And, but like these are, we're going to be, look back at all this stuff and say, yeah, that was the start of it. Or that was a key turning point. And well, we're already there. We already yeah. had 50 shades of gray, yeah, which was exactly, fan fiction. Exactly. That became Man. like the biggest book of the decade. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, if that's not bleak enough. <laughs> well, it's more interesting. I mean, it is bleak, but it's also just in- like yeah, publishing is always going to exist. Publishing is always going to like I'm not a doomsayer in that regard, but like things are going to change. Right. And I'm yeah. excited to see how that happens. But yeah, but that was a very heartfelt um, <laughs> interjection to what was going to be a very killer transition. Oh, sorry. Um, that's okay. That's okay. You didn't know because I wasn't able to do the hand signal to you. Oh, I hate the hand signal. You do the hand signal. You're the one that invented the hand signal. I know because I get to feel like Peyton Manning audibling. <laughs> I don't it's, know what that means. It's so bad. No, <laughs> someone listening to this knows what I'm talking about, and they know how cool it feels to be given the hand signals. So anyway, uh, continue, please. Anyway, um, if that's not bleak enough, 
Let's talk about smagencies. <laughs> there we go. Um, we we yes, actually <laughs> we spent a little bit longer talking about Wolf Kink than I thought we were going to, but that's I, okay. I thought we spent the exact amount of time I was prepared to talk about Wolf Kink. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Maybe I'm just out of practice. Then I don't that's know. Right. We didn't even talk about nodding, so it oh doesn't matter. Oh my god! No, no. If I'm, we're not going to tell you what that is. If you want to know, go look it up. Um, Cut that. Cut that immediately. <laughs> uh, anyway. Okay. Uh, so one of the things that Eric and I have been talking a lot about offline, especially um, given that people aren't working in offices right now. Yes. Um, and agents are like, I saw a post on Twitter like last week or maybe it was early this week. I don't know. What day is it? What year is it? Um, yeah. where Where an agent based in New York was like, editors how even are we supposed to know what you want to buy if we can't go to lunch and (laughs) and i i just like laughed and then got filled with incandescent rage because we're agents that are not based in new york and we have to have like phone calls or like take a flight or like send emails if we want to know like whatever anyway people are catching up um but it also means that some there have been a few cases that have really, I guess, accelerated the exposure of maybe not industry standard or frankly, even very good agency practices. Um, And and I I think I want to talk about the idea of smagents and smagencies. So if you're not familiar with those terms, they definitely look better written than said. Um, (laughs) but, But these are people or or organizations agencies that are in some way operating in a type of bad faith yes um whether that is that they are charging authors reading fees or they are just kind of signing anything and everything and not doing a good job like helping authors with their careers whether they're using or like they're only selling to places that accept non-agented submissions um, just so they can get a cut of something that you could do yourself. Maybe they're not negotiating contracts. Um, yeah. Anyway, so those are those are the type of agencies that you'll like find on writer beware or any of like the other forums that talk about because they're writer facing because they're writer facing issues so like when we did the big episode on danielle smith like that is specifically like an agency that was a agency right like that was an agency that was doing harm to writers and trying to cover it up Mm -hmm. but there's there's something really important i we've been getting a lot of private correspondence from writers who are saying okay, I heard about this agency or heard about this agent and I like did a ton of research on this person or this place and I couldn't find anything wrong. Like how am I, and now this this news come out, like how am I supposed to make good choices and protect myself? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think think the important thing is that I really want to do is is just like create a distinction and and a space for a conversation to talk about that there's a second kind of smagency which is which is um the kind that primarily is bad for agents 
And only over time and only very slowly does an agency that is bad for its agents become an agency that is bad for its writers. So it's hard to find. Mm -hmm. So let's talk for a second about ways that an agency might get that moniker with regard to how it treats its own agents as opposed to one that is more readily identifiable as writer-focused, writer-facing. Yeah, I think um, I think the big thing is to just like call attention again that this is this is a job <laughs> uh, yes. that has absolutely. You wouldn't no... know it by the way people talk about I it. I know, it, right? Like it gets talked about like a fun little hobby. <laughs> well, for a lot of people, it is, Eric. Yeah, um... it's true. <laughs> God damn it! Uh, uh... So this is this is a job that has absolutely no oversight. So anybody can call themselves an agent. Um, and anybody can, you know, sort of like wedge their way into getting to know, um, editors and doing deals and that sort of thing. Um, so on paper they look really good, but Mm -hmm. one thing that everybody talks about is agenting and it's really important and very, very, you know, like integral to the job, which is it's an apprenticeship based like skill, right? Right. Um, you learn, which is to say that you learn this job by watching others do it. It's not something you just like you come in with like there's no qualification, there's no degree. It's very much based on um watching there's no and curriculum. learning and then doing exactly. Like it's a job that you do. Yeah. It's ex- totally experiential. Yeah. So, I think the 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 most common or I guess the most easily found some agencies are the ones who collect junior agents like chicklets. Yes. Um you know, they they just like are signing people left and right. There's not a lot of oversight. There's not collaboration. There's not um, mentorship in any way, shape, or form. And basically, what they're doing is they're setting these people up to fail. Um, they bring, and they're and, also not paying them. I mean, that's the thing that I think <laughs> is key is like you can be an agency and quote unquote hire someone, and that can mean literally nothing. Like you, as you're saying, like not only does it mean you don't have to actually help them do their job. You don't have to give them resources. You don't have to, like, give them any oversight or training. You don't even have to pay them salary or benefits or anything. All you have to do is just say, yeah, go work with our name on your, in your email signature, and whatever you do, we'll take a cut of. Like, it's very you're, – you're actually being paid by this – this is a thing that I have thought for a long time is that in so many instances in an agency like this, like – the agent is actually paying to work because they're not getting any help from the agency and are giving away a cut. And so it's like you're like from the agency perspective, there's really nothing to lose if you're someone who's just trying to like gather people, you know what I mean? Like you can just sign folks and have it not matter at all because there's no overhead to signing someone. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to give them any time or money. And if they happen to sell something great, you get a cut and you don't care, you know, like, it's just it's really bad. It makes me really mad like this kind of thing. Right. And and a lot of the times these agencies will like isolate their young agents. They'll teach them things yeah. and they'll and they'll like yeah. gaslight them into thinking that this this way of working is super normal. Yeah. Um and what's and so people sell a couple books and then they quit. You know, they burn out, they leave. And yes. this is really problematic in that a lot of these smaller agencies who do take advantage of authors and maybe take as much as half of their commission i know agencies that take half or more than half of people's commissions um these are the only places hiring minorities 
And then they just like take advantage of them and they get like kicked to the curb once they can't hack it anymore. Yes. Yes. Um, Yeah. And so like all of that behind the scenes stuff is like, what support is this person getting? Like you can't necessarily find that out because again, your agents don't talk about it. That's not a thing. You don't talk about how much money you're making. You don't talk about your percentages. You don't talk about um, your submission strategies. You don't talk about any of that. And so much of it, I think, is because of risk exposure, right? Yeah. Like what, this is how – so like when we talk about an agency being bad for agents before it's bad for writers, like what we mean is that you set an agent up to fail and then when an agent fails – who takes the response? Like, who's the one out of a career? Who's the one out of who's had their reputation tarnished? Who's suddenly, you know, kind of the public face of a disaster or something? You know, it's the agent, not the agent. Like, mm-hmm. we, you know what I mean? Like, it's not the person, the, the place. And obviously, like, the answer is probably both. You know, there's obviously individual responsibility in this job, but there's also, I think, it's, it seems really important to me that. This second kind of schmagency is one that we talk about too because I just, I don't know. It's hard seeing like when, like as you, as you pointed out correctly, like no one talks about this stuff. And the reason is because the incentive, like what there is to lose in doing so is always on the individual level. It's never mm-hmm. like solidarity and stuff in, you know, in like cooperation and it's not very good in agenting, like for reasons that I guess we could go into some other time, but like, it's not a field that is super supportive of one another. I don't think like it's one that I think largely exists around secrecy and, um, I don't know what you would even call it, but like, there's all this like stigmatization of certain things. Like, you know, and we, like we, I remember like years ago we had Justin Simer on the show and, you know, she was kind of talking about, like, the shame she felt and even having to admit that she had, like, a second job, you know, like, all that kind of stuff. It's, like, it's not an environment that makes it very easy to talk about this stuff with. And it all, and it ends up meaning that agencies that are just bringing people in totally irresponsibly and then throwing them to the curb the second it doesn't work out for them in any way, like, they can kind of get away with this stuff. And it's, and so, and oftentimes, I mean, the, to bring this back to most of our listenership, which is like writers, um, that obviously ends up hurting writers who sign with this place, who are trying to get an accurate read on what's happening um, in the industry so they know where to send work, all that kind of stuff. And it just makes it really confusing and bad, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm, and I'm even thinking about, um, like... There are a lot of really big, really well-established, um, in some in some cases, really respected agencies that just like chew agents out and spit them, yeah. or like chew, yeah. chew them up and spit them out. And I'm thinking of that one agency we got into a feud with a couple of years ago, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we were threatened with legislation. Um, yeah, litigation, Lit- yeah, litigation, not legislation. Yeah. We were just talking yeah. about legislation. Now we're yeah, okay. Um, yeah, we were threatened with litigation um, because we were we were pointing out a way that a particular agent was being unethical yeah. towards writers. Yeah. And like what what happens is when there is in an, an agency environment that is 
not good for agents. What ends up happening is things get skewed. So they end up, these agencies end up like valuing and protecting things that are things that are bad right um big surprise and so i I was like i've been emailing with a lot of writers who have written in yeah you know anonymously just to us to be like what's going on um through the print run account and i think i think it's less about somebody saying this agent is bad this agency is bad or even um you know, even just like this person couldn't sell my book because that's not really a, necessarily a marker of of a bad agent. But I think it's more about like what the agency is focusing on. Mm-hmm. Um, so like a, you can tell a SME agency when even like a well-respected one when they're focusing on the wrong markers. So if they're focusing on we're number whatever on publishers marketplace. Yeah. Um, or, yeah. you know, we offer on books and we end up signing whatever percent of the ones that we offer on or mm-hmm. things like that, rather than, you know, we built these careers Career into something focus. sustaining yeah. or we right. were able to get this really like big deal. And I think really like, honestly, like those are, those are the metrics that matter, which mm-hmm. is specific cases of working working with authors, not like our overall signing success as an agency, because, again, that makes you look really impressive, um, but doesn't actually necessarily mean anything. Um, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. I think and there's not like a big takedown here or anything like that, but I think this is not something that writers even know about, let alone have the bandwidth necessarily to, to kind of figure out on their own. Right. And I think what I mean by the, what I mean by bringing all of this up is just that I want to keep pushing that call that Eric and I have been working on for three years, which is a, a call for transparency. And I'm talking about agents between agents. I'm talking agents to, publishing houses and I'm also talking agents to writers because I think it's really important to understand when you sign with somebody what kind of support you're signing up for yeah I mean I I think all of that is I think all that's really well said I mean I get and so like talking again to like writers who listen to this like the key is just to to do your research to ask around and like to the eight to the industry you know let's just point toward transparency right like let's make sure like let's have conversations let's know what we're all doing so that these bizarre situations don't come up you know that seems like the best (laughs) thing that for everyone so yeah i think that's a good place to end it thank you all so much for joining us for this episode of print run and stay tuned for our special episodes and probably a regular episode that will be coming next week bye